This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. When 19-year-old Elizabeth Holmes founded her company, Theranos, she promised to revolutionize blood testing with a new technology called Edison. This was to be the iPod of healthcare. A mere pinprick of blood could be used to run hundreds of tests. It would be quick, painless, and affordable. She formed a partnership with Walgreens, and at its peak, her company was worth $10 billion. She was compared to Steve Jobs. She even dressed a little bit like him, in black pants and turtleneck. But it sounded too good to be true, and it was. John Carreyrou, a two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning Wall Street journalist, journal reporter, began investigating Theranos in a series of detailed articles. Undaunted by pressure from the company's CEO and lawyers, he did his work and he took on a giant, raising enough doubts about Theranos' policies, procedures, and promises that by 2015, Holmes and her corporation were being investigated by a host of medical authorities, investors, State Attorneys General, the Securities and Exchange Commission, and others. And just last Friday, news broke that federal prosecutors have now filed criminal charges against Theranos, Elizabeth Holmes, and her former number two executive, Ramesh Sunny Balwani. Carrie Rue's new book, Bad Blood, recounts the riveting story of deception, fraud, and pathological lies which he uncovered in what is now being called the biggest corporate fraud since Enron. It's a privilege to introduce him. Please join me in welcoming John Carrie to Politics and Prose. Uh, good evening. I was uh, doing a, uh, an event like this one in um, Silicon Valley two weeks ago in uh, Menlo Park at a an old bookstore uh, called uh, Kepler's Books, which has been around uh, since I think the, the late 50s and actually predates uh, the concept even of Silicon Valley. And uh, one of the questions that I got uh, from someone in the audience was, uh, where, uh, which part of the country is your book uh, selling you know, the best in? And I had actually, as it happened, I had looked um, uh, at this feature that Amazon.com has um, that you can access at that morning and had been surprised to see that um, uh, Bad Blood was the best-selling nonfiction book in Washington, D.C. Uh, <laughs> and so I, I told this to this uh, Silicon Valley audience, and I also told them that um, I was surprised because I expected you know either Palo Alto or Menlo Park or San Francisco to show up as as the region uh, where it sold the most, but it was Washington. Um, and uh, I guess I've, I've thought about that a little bit, and um, at first it didn't really make sense, um, but uh, come to think of it, I think, uh, well, first of all, you know, Washington is, is a place of uh, big egos and uh, power um, and intrigue, and I think uh, uh, the Theranos story has all of those uh, ingredients. Uh, but also, um, for those of you who have read the book or who will discover it in coming days and weeks, um, uh, there, there was a, a Washington dimension to this. Um, uh, Elizabeth uh, was trying to, uh, Elizabeth Holmes, 
at one point was trying to get her device, uh, this blood testing device, um, the last iteration of it, of which was actually called the Mini Lab. The Edison was the, the second to last uh, iteration of the technology. She was trying to get the Army to use it um, in the battlefield in Afghanistan, and uh, she had uh, networked with Jim Mattis, who is now our, our Secretary of Defense. And um, another part of the Theranos story is that uh, she really exploited a loophole um, in the laboratory industry um, and, and was able to dodge close scrutiny by um, both the FDA, which regulates diagnostic equipment uh, that labs buy and use to do their testing, and CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which is um, in addition to running the Medicare program. Uh, not many people know this, but it has a second hat, which is that um, wears a second hat, which is that it regulates clinical labs. And um, so, so there's, there are Washington aspects to this uh, story, um, and, and Washington figures uh, uh, who were, um, you know, taken by Elizabeth, former famous Washington figures, uh, such as uh, the former Secretary of State George Shultz, um, former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, um, you know, when you when you look at her board uh, at the height of her fame, it was a, a who's who of ex um, uh, cabinet members and congressmen and, and retired military commanders, uh, many of whom had spent uh, obviously parts of their lives in, in Washington. So uh, when I thought about it, it started to make sense why why this story um, interested people in in this city. Um, I guess I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about how I got in onto the uh, Theranos story, and then we can open up open it up to questions uh, in ten or fifteen minutes. Um, I was uh, it, this is uh, so rewind back to December of two thousand fourteen. I work at the Wall Street Journal, which has its newsroom in uh, Midtown Manhattan, and uh, I'm a Longtime subscriber and reader of the New Yorker magazine, and I often read it uh, on my commute uh, to and from the office. I live in Brooklyn, and so this was an evening in, in uh, December 2014, and I read this profile of Elizabeth Holmes in the New Yorker on the subway ride home, and um, she had rocketed to fame about a year earlier. Earlier, and um, I actually had not noticed um, this. This story put her on my radar for the first time, and. Um, there were several things in the story that struck me as odd. Um, probably the, the one uh, that that was the most odd, or the most off, I should say, was this notion that uh, a college dropout had um, dropped out, you know, in, in the middle of uh, her sophomore year with just two or three semesters of chemical engineering under her belt and gone on to pioneer uh, groundbreaking medical science. I knew that there was a history of this happening with computers and software and coding um, that Mark Zuckerberg, legend has it, learned how to code on his uh, father's computer when he was 10 and Bill Gates 30 years prior had done the same thing. Um, and I understood that this sort of thing was, was possible with software. You could uh, teach yourself how to program with a, with a manual and spending a lot of hours at the keyboard. But I had reported a lot on medicine and healthcare over the previous 10 years and uh, I knew that um, that it, this sort of thing didn't really happen in medicine. That um, you know, in medicine, usually you have to go to medical school and you have to have uh, uh, formal training and then do years and often decades of research. And there's a reason that uh, 
Nobel scientists in medicine often win the Nobel in their 60s. It's, it's after a lifetime of, of research and work that, they, that they've added value. Um, so that, that notion that was, uh, you know, uh, I mean, it's how she portrayed herself and, and the New Yorker writers seemed to, to believe her, I thought was very odd. But to be fair, I probably would not have done anything with this intuition if I hadn't gotten a tip a few weeks later. I was um, sitting at my desk in the journal newsroom, the phone rang, and I picked it up, and um, uh, it was a fellow by the name of Adam Clapper, who was a pathologist in the Midwest and who moonlighted as the writer of this obscure blog that he called Pathology Blog, uh, and he spelled blog B-L-A-W-G. And um, uh, I'm confident in saying that not many people read this blog, um, <laughs> but I, I happened to have come across it um, the previous year and, and had actually reached out to this guy um, because I was at the time reporting a, a series of stories on Medicare fraud and um, I needed someone to explain to me the complexities of laboratory billing. And uh, I come across this guy's blog and um, just reached out to him in the hope that he could be the person who, who would do that, and he did. And um, I hadn't spoken to him in about eight months, and here he was calling me again. And it, it uh, turned out that he had read this New Yorker profile as well, and knowing a thing or two about blood testing was immediately suspicious of uh, the central claim, which was that uh, she had invest invented this technology that could run the full range of lab tests off just a, a tiny drop or two of blood pricked from a finger. Um, and so he had gone ahead and, and written a short skeptical uh, post on his blog declaring himself a skeptic and um, was immediately contacted uh, by uh, a guy uh, who was uh, a Theranos skeptic, a longtime Theranos skeptic who had been involved in patent litigation with Theranos and had actually, his name was Richard Fuse, and he had actually been um, uh, the Holmes's neighbor back in the early 80s in Washington, D.C., in, in Fox Hall Crescent. Um, and uh, his wife, Lorraine Fuse, had befriended uh, Elizabeth's mom, Noelle Holmes, and they had become good friends and remained friends for 20 years after that. And um, the thing about Fuse is that he was a medical inventor and entrepreneur, and uh, he patented quite a few... Uh, ideas and, and launched a few companies and sold them and made quite a bit of money. Um, and when Elizabeth Holmes dropped out of Stanford uh, in 2003, um, the Fuses started hearing about her uh, startup through her parents, whom they remained friendly with. And uh, this guy Fuse had been wounded in his pride because he felt that uh, the Holmeses and Elizabeth should have come to him for advice since you know, medicine and medical inventing was what he did, and they hadn't, um, and, he, you know, Fuse is uh, very vain and prideful, and uh, at the same time, so he was, he was hurt, but at the same time, uh, he, had, um, he, he had checked out uh, an interview that Elizabeth had given as a 21-year-old in, in 2005 to NPR, and also checked out the Theranos website, and he thought there was actually merit to her vision. Um, and he wasn't sure if she would eventually pull it off or not, but it gave him the idea of, of patenting a mechanism uh, that 
uh, would alert doctors to an abnormal test result if a device such as the one Elizabeth Holmes was working on were ever to be commercialized. And he figured that either that down the road, either Theranos or another company would want to license his patent and, there, and that there would be money in it for him. And so he had gone, away, gone ahead and done that behind uh, the Holmes's back. And later, Elizabeth Holmes, around 2008, had learned about his patent. And uh, then a few years after that, had sued him in 2011 um, and had hired the famous lawyer David Boys uh, to sue him and had pretty much steamrolled him, steamrolled him and forced him to, into a, an unfavorable settlement and under which he had had to withdraw his patent. And during this, this litigation, uh, he had become uh, convinced that Theranos was a scam. So when he saw the pathology bloggers post, he immediately contacted him and told him about his suspicions. And it also happened that he had just made contact with a uh, Theranos employee who had just left, who had been the laboratory director at Theranos. And um, so he relayed this, inf this info to the pathology blogger who relayed it to me. And um, I realized that you know the, this was information basically three times removed from a primary, primary source. But I heard that there was a primary source out there namely this ex-laboratory director and, and that he was alleging, you know, that Theranos wasn't, uh, you know, hadn't really achieved what it claimed and all manner of wrongdoing. And so I, I pulled on that string and eventually made contact with the primary source, the lab director. Um, he uh, goes under a pseudonym in, in the book. Uh, the pseudonym is Alan Beam, and I'm, I'm still shielding his real name. Um, and when I got Alan Beam on the phone, he was terrified because um, uh, Theranos lawyers were hounding him and harassing him and wanted to sign, wanted him to sign an affidavit um, uh, promising, uh, even though he'd already signed a, a non-disclosure agreement when he'd been hired, they were trying to get him to sign another affidavit uh, pledging to never reveal anything about what he knew about Theranos. Um, and they were also trying to get him to uh, delete um, emails that he had sent from himself, work emails that he had sent to his personal Gmail account. And so he was just terrified and, and um, would not talk to me unless I granted him confidentiality, which I did. And, uh, and then over the course of an hour, told me a lot of what he knew. And uh, this was uh, February of 2015. And, and after that first conversation, I, you know, I just knew this is a huge story. Um, she's been portrayed as this wonder, wonderkind, uh, the first female uh, tech billionaire founder. Um, uh, if what he was saying was correct, she had not only misled investors and essentially committed fraud, but also uh, had gone live with these finger stick tests in Walgreens stores that were faulty and that um, you know were putting patients in harm's way. And in fact, that was the, the main reason that he was opening up to me um, to a reporter, uh, it was in the hope of um, you know the eventual story that, that would be published. Uh, he, he hoped that that story would would make um, you know expose these lies and and eventually force uh, Theranos to stop this faulty blood testing. So that's how I uh, got onto the story, and um, then it became a, a game of corroboration because. Um, uh, however good my source was, he was an anonymous source, and there was no way the journal was going to allow me to, to publish this story based on one anonymous source. 
So I went about um, uh, trying to find other ex-employees who would talk to me and who would uh, corroborate what this guy was telling me. And uh, that took several months. And, and uh, I eventually made contact with another former employee um, by the name of Tyler Schultz, who uh, is the grandson of the former Secretary of State, George Schultz, who um, these days lives uh, near the Stanford campus and um, has always been passionate about science and had met Elizabeth Holmes in 2011 and joined her board and become essentially her biggest champion. And Tyler had met Elizabeth through his grandfather and then gone to work for Theranos and had only lasted eight months there because during those eight months uh, he had become convinced that the company was a fraud and was behaving unethically. Um, and so Tyler became a confidential source as well, corroborating, helping to corroborate what my original source had told me. Um, and then uh, as, as I recount in the, in the last part of the book, um, that's where things got really interesting because um, at first Theranos, when I started confronting them with you know, the questions I had and what I'd uncovered in my reporting. Um, I'd also gone to Phoenix and, and talked to doctors and patients who'd received questionable results. So I had examples of, of false blood test results. And uh, at first, Theranos sort of put me off, but then um, started waging a very fierce counterattack. And uh, it involved uh, David Boys and his associates coming to the journal um, and uh, sort of threatening us and staring us down for five hours um, in a, a pretty surreal scene that's recounted in, in one of the chapters in the book. And, and also, uh, they uh, went about trying to figure out who my confidential sources were and figured out that Tyler was one of them. So Tyler was then put through an unbelievable ordeal where uh, Theranos and its lawyers pressured him uh, for months. He, he um, ended up going uh, dark on me. Uh, as they were putting the screws to him, and he was ambushed at one point at his grandfather's house by two Boyce Schiller attorneys, and um, just had to deal with uh, a, a really a, a tremendous amount of pressure. And amazingly, uh, with the help of his parents, who um, hired um, lawyers for him, was able to withstand this pressure and, and not cave and not, not recant and not name my sources as Theranos wanted him to do. And um, in, in large part, thanks to him and his courage, I was able to go to press with my story nine months after I started my investigation in September, sorry, October of 2015. And that's when, uh, you know, the, the scandal sort of broke open. Um, but it took a long time uh, to, for the fallout, you know, to, to uh, uh, transpire and, and for it to become clear that that my reporting was correct and that the Wall Street Journal had been right and the, the culmination of all this fallout um, was uh, as you mentioned on Friday when uh, the US Attorney's Office in San Francisco uh, brought uh, wire fraud uh, criminal charges uh, against Elizabeth Holmes and Sonny Balwani that carry a, a potential um, prison sentence of 20 years and so we, we will now see if um, uh, she and, and Sonny either try to negotiate a plea bargain or if they take this to trial. And if it goes to trial, it will be an, another interesting uh, chapter in this uh, crazy saga. It's me first. Hi. Um, I, I came here to actually thank you for your 
excellent journalism. I've read like at least, I think it's 30 articles that you've written for, about this story going back about three years. I, I think I've written more than 40. 40. <laughs> I've read most After of them. I've read one. almost every one of them. Um, I just wanted to thank you for that. Um, my question, I've already read the book and I don't want to reveal anything too much to so just censor me if you need to. Um, so Rupert Murdoch plays a role in this book. Um, and I think he kind of downplayed it a little bit, but um, he had, I mean, he ended up being one of the biggest investors in Theranos towards the end. So Mark, I wasn't clear in the book if you ended up interviewing him. And second, what do you, what would you think was the reason why he let kind of, she was coming in to kill the story and he said, I'm going to let it ride. So could you yeah. answer both those questions? So uh, for, for those of you who haven't read the book, um, when I started digging into Theranos in uh, February of 2015, uh, she was soliciting an investment from Rupert Murdoch, who controls the journal's parent company and is essentially, in a way, my boss. Um, he, he, I didn't know that uh, he was being solicited. He didn't know that I was looking into the company. He ended up uh, making an investment in March of 2015, so a couple weeks into my digging. And um, he invested $125 million in Theranos, which, which made him the single largest investor. And I had no idea. And um, the first rumors I heard that he might be an investor, uh, I heard them a couple days before we published in October of 2015 and uh, wasn't able to confirm them. And then sporadically over the ensuing year, kept hearing rumors that he might be an investor and finally got... Uh, confirmation of it a year after my first story was published in um, October of 2016. Um, and when I learned uh, the information from a, a very good source, I learned that that he had not only been an investor, not only was an investor, but was the biggest one. And my jaw dropped. I couldn't believe it. Um, now, what I did subsequently learn reporting the book is that... Um, she had several meetings with him leading up to the publication of my first story and tried to um, get him to, to kill the story. And the last of those meetings had been two weeks before we went to press with my story in, uh, at the very end of September of 2015. And uh, she had gone to his office on the eighth floor of the News Corp building in Midtown Manhattan and uh, insistently brought up my story and, and arguing that it was um, that you know, what I was going to write in it was false and would do great damage to the company and hoping that he would volunteer to kill it. And uh, he didn't. He, he told her that um, uh, he trusted the journal's editors to do the right thing and to handle the matter fairly. And, and two weeks later, we went to press with a story on the, on the front page. Um, it, with respect to your uh, question about whether I interviewed him for the book, um, there are some people that I've spoken to uh, on deep background uh, for the book and um, if I you know with the people that I did that with I can't um, you know reveal who they are and so I'm not going to comment um, but uh, what I can tell you is that the, the information about how he came to meet Elizabeth and how she um, courted him as an investor uh, and the complete lack of due diligence on his part, all that is, comes from a very, very good source. <laughs> Hi. Uh, because a good friend of mine recently had a kidney transplant, I'm aware of how complex surgeries like that require 
long planning and endless batteries of extensive blood tests that basically deplete someone who's already pretty depleted. Yep. So the goal that Theranos had is a laudable one from um, a therapeutic standpoint, but I'm wondering if it really is attainable, and I'm wondering if the people who chose to believe and invested and went on the board were motivated by stories like my friends or whether it was more the usual, let's make money on this. I think that it was probably a combination of the two. Uh, I found no evidence in, in my three years of reporting that uh, any of the board members realized that, that she was a con, con artist and that she um, was lying essentially about what she'd achieved. Uh, I think they believed her and they believed in, in her vision and were excited by this technology. Um, now, did you know greed play a role as well? Probably because she... Um, paid these directors, the likes of George Shultz and Henry Kissinger and Bill Perry, former Secretary of Defense under Clinton, uh, with hundreds of thousands of shares. Um, and so uh, at the, the peak valuation of $10 million, those shares were worth several million dollars for each of those directors. Um, but I think you, know, you, you make a good point, which is that the vision was laudable and um, uh, there are very clear and good uses for a product that could do what she claimed hers could do um, uh, uh, for people like the pa the patient that you mentioned for for cancer patients um, who also have a lot of blood draws to determine how they're reacting to the drugs and whether their uh, drug regimens need to be adjusted for newborns uh, for elderly people uh, and also field applications, you know, when, when there are outbreaks in, in uh, the third world, you could uh, really use, people could really use, uh, public health authorities could really use a portable blood testing device that does a lot of tests. Um, and uh, as to the feasibility of it, is it possible um, the current state of science is such that it's not right now? You know, no one has figured out how to solve a couple of key problems. Uh, as I explain in the book, there are about half a uh, half dozen major classes of blood tests. And each of these classes of blood tests uh, require completely different laboratory techniques and, and different laboratory instruments to, to perform. And when you're done with uh, uh, doing your PSA test and your vitamin T D test and thyroid tests, which are all uh, in this one class of blood tests called immunoassays, then you're and and you're working from a tiny finger stick sample. You don't have any blood left to do the general chemistry assays. That if you want to measure cholesterol in the sample or what have you, and uh, no one has been able to crack that nut yet. Um, the other issue uh, is that uh, blood pricked from the finger is actually less pure from a, a the point of view of, of getting accurate results than venous blood uh, because it's polluted with uh, tissue from uh, cells. And, um, uh, you know, when, when uh, you prick the finger and you milk uh, the blood from the finger, uh, often that causes red blood cells to burst and to release potassium uh, into the blood sample, which then increases artificially the, the concentration of potassium in the, in the finger stick sample. And so potassium in particular uh, is a test that's completely unreliable from capillary samples. And uh, 
you know, there's some people in lab medicine who knew this, who were quietly extremely dubious that, that she had managed to, to solve that problem. Thank you. Yep. Hi. Um, thanks very much for all your reporting. I'm about five pages into the book. Uh, but what surprises me is that it doesn't seem to be a realization that they're going to get caught if the tests are not good, that people get bad results, they get retested, and that if they did have the regulatory scrutiny, and I worked at FDA, that it says, yes, this is good enough, and there's no one to say, yes, this is good enough, as far as I can tell. How did they get around that? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is one of the, the themes of the book, which is that she uh, wanted to be a successful entrepreneur in the tradition of Steve Jobs and Larry Ellison and you know these people who uh, built companies and made fortunes in Silicon in Silicon Valley, essentially in the computer industry. I mean, what has now become, uh, you know, smartphones and smartphone apps uh, started out with semiconductors in in the '60s, and then uh, personal computers in the '80s, and then the internet boom in in the '90s, and and now you know. Uh, smartphones and apps like Uber, and that's completely different than medicine. And, and, and in that traditional Silicon Valley tech industry, there's been an ethos of fake it until you make it, you know, over promise to investors, to everyone, basically get the funding and then use the funding to, to try to realize the vision and hope that the reality of your, of your product catches up to your hype. Um, and she really channeled that uh, culture and that ethos um, and it was a fatal mistake. Um, and, uh, you know, she should have modeled herself after, say, the biotech industry. There's a big biotech cluster actually just north of Silicon Valley or at the northern edge of Silicon Valley in South San Francisco. And um, instead of, um, you know, idolizing Steve Jobs and modeling herself after Steve Jobs, she, she would have done better uh, to um, model herself after uh, the founder of Genentech or, you know, these people in South San Francisco who are doing real medical research and who know that when you're working on a product that uh, is going to affect patient lives because it's the product's going to be used to make important medical decisions that you do have to abide by regulations and, and um, that you have to have within your company checks and balances and compliance officers and so on and so forth. And so uh, she, you know, she she really uh, modeled herself after the wrong industry. And I think um, it's, um, it's a lesson uh, to draw from this uh, story, the scandal, because increasingly you're seeing uh, out in the Bay Area a uh, convergence between the traditional Silicon Valley and, and medical research. And people in Silicon Valley are talking a lot about how much uh, healthcare needs to be disrupted. And I think the Theranos scandal shows that, um, uh, you know, the, the way of doing business in Silicon Valley uh, can only take you so far in healthcare. Okay, thank you. Hi. Hi. I, I may uh, or may not also work for the FDA. Um, Currently. Yeah, May, right. Maybe currently. Right. Uh, I have two questions. One, can you talk about the environment that Elizabeth Holmes abandoned at Stanford? Because they have an entire infrastructure for technology transfer. They have several incubators that will bring a concept to market. And, you know, no small number of those are in the, in the healthcare world. So that's my first question. Then secondly, 
um, you know, her actions as a as a dropout may have been a, combi a combination of hubris and naivete or whatever, but the people that she snowed on her board, on her advisory board, the, these people, you know, are, are power brokers. How difficult would it have been for them to reach out to someone, have them sign <clears throat> a non-disclosure agreement, and look at the at the you know the level of rigor of the science, right? And what does that say <clears throat> about the general um, scientific and technological literacy of senior policymakers and their general respect for scientists in the United States? I mean, yeah. Okay, I'll shut up now. Thank you. No, it doesn't <laughs> doesn't speak well to it. Um, uh, your first question about the, the the infrastructure that Stanford has and the incubator, she didn't uh, take advantage of that at all. Um, she operated completely outside of that. She, you know, uh, did an internship at a lab in Singapore between her freshman and sophomore year, and then uh, wrote this uh, patent uh, when she got back home in Houston, uh, and uh, it was for a um, sort of an armband that would have these micro needles that would painlessly draw little samples of your blood and then uh, simultaneously diagnose you with whatever ailed you and and cure you by injecting the appropriate drug. It was like a, you know, it was a science fiction vision, um, and uh, laid out in this in this patent or proposed patent, and somehow she she managed to still convince Channing Robertson. Um, this well-respected uh, associate dean and professor at the Stanford School of Engineering, that it was a good idea for her to to pursue this vision, um, and and he encouraged her to do it and even join her board as an advisor. And then, um, you know, through through the years, uh, uh, several uh, people went to him, and and he he knew that there were issues with the way Elizabeth was running the company and, and uh, you know, the, in particular, the, the scientist Ian Gibbons who committed suicide in 2013 and 2010. He was an old friend and, and uh, ex-colleague of, of Channing's at a previous company and went to Channing and, and told him that uh, Elizabeth was behaving both unethically and, and really managing the company incompetently. And Channing Robertson proceeded to stab him in the back and go to Elizabeth and tell her everything that Ian Gibbons had said. And so Ian was then fired and then rehired but demoted. And that was the beginning of a long spiral uh, that um, led to him becoming clinically depressed and, and committing suicide. Um, so she, uh, but the the simple question, the simple answer to your question is that she didn't uh, go through the, those channels at all. And then, um, you know, the, the people like George Schultz and Henry Kissinger and Bill Frist and Sam Nunn and, and Jim Mattis, all of these people could have done what you say, or they could have at least tried to do what you say. Uh, you know, it raised the idea with Elizabeth of hiring an expert and bringing him in. And, and what would have probably happened is what happened when uh, Walgreens tried to do a modicum of due diligence in, in 2010 and hired this uh, outside lab expert named uh, Kevin Hunter, who uh, runs a small lab consultancy firm in, in Chicago, uh, who had worked for a decade at Quest before um, uh, setting up his own under his own shingle. And they Walgreens brought Hunter in and, and uh, made him a part of the Walgreens innovation team. And he tried to kick the tires. He went out to Palo Alto several times and he started asking tough questions. He started smelling a rat and uh, started trying to, you know, 
raise alarm bells with the Walgreens executives. And uh, at that point, uh, Elizabeth Holmes and Sonny uh, Balwani, her boyfriend, told Walgreens that uh, they no longer wanted this guy, Kevin Hunter, to participate in the meetings between the two companies and in the video conference calls they had every week. And um, uh, he was, at that point, marginalized. He was excluded by Walgreens, even though they were paying him to be to look after their own interests. Um, and, and the reason is that Walgreens executives were terrified that um, if they didn't do as Sonny and Elizabeth wanted, that Theranos would end the partnership and turn around and, and uh, start one with um, CVS, Walgreens' big rival in, in Rhode Island. So they had this this major fear of, of missing out. And, um, you know, there, there were a lot of people over the course of 12 years before I came along, as detailed in the book, who uh, tried to raise red flags. And um, somehow she overcame you know, each of these obstacles to, to continue to, um, uh, you know, develop her con. And, uh, um, so I suspect that if the, if the board members had tried to do, uh, what you suggest that she, she probably would have just said no. And, and if they had insisted too much, she would have, uh, made them leave the board. Um, if I could follow up, um, Francine from Market Watch. Um, we've talked about yeah. these issues mm -hmm. a little bit um, on the on the the due diligence and and these red flags. So you've described you know um, people that saw this and were skeptical very early in the process. You just described Walgreens, you know, in their partnership, you know, having this someone is in who told 2010, them, yeah, the, right, having yeah. someone who told them. You talked about you know uh, uh, Mr. Murdoch, you know, didn't do any due diligence. Talk about the board, you know, who willfully you know, served, but, you know, didn't do, you know, their fiduciary responsibility. I mean, someone told me, another journalist told me that I was Monday morning quarterbacking by saying, you know, there were a hundred red flags that people could have reacted to and stopped this a lot sooner. And they didn't. And he said, no, these were smart con artists and you're expecting too much from investors, even sophisticated investors. I mean, why is someone like Tim Draper, one of the early investors, still defending her on TV, still saying, in yeah. spite of an indictment, that she's still a visionary? I mean, right. what, what do you make of this like willful complicity or, or blindness um, that is just seems to be so pervasive? Yeah, unwillingness well, to do in, this in work. The, in the case of Draper, um, you know, uh, I, I didn't know Silicon Valley that well when I first got the Theranos tip and then have since uh, gone to the Bay Area a bunch of times um, and it's become sort of my second home and I feel like I know uh, the Valley a lot better and I was blown away um, during this learning process about how much hubris and arrogance there is out there among not just some of the tech founders but the VCs and and Draper uh, quite honestly is is you know exhibit A of that um, his uh, position seems to be that just because um, she was an entrepreneur in Silicon Valley who had a cool vision that uh, and that she actually pursued that vision that 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 excuses everything and that she's she's um, exempt from the the laws the rules and the laws that we all have to abide by as citizens of this country that that it gives her you know uh, carte blanche to to really uh, achieve her end by whatever means 
available. And in this case, the means became this massive fraud that put patients in harm's way. And I think most of you and most people in our country would uh, completely disagree with him and would say that um, there is no excuse for essentially committing white collar, a white collar crime. Um, as to the, you know, the gullibility of investors, I mean, there's, a, there's some people who invested money in Theranos here tonight. Um, uh, and uh, I heard from some of them that uh, Elizabeth would, in terms of disclosures to these investors, would uh, essentially run the company like North Korea and wouldn't give them any, uh, any disclosure about the, the financials uh, you know, the revenues, the profits, anything, uh, and not even uh, glimpses of the technology. Um, uh, you know, the North Korea analogy is not even mine. It's, it's actually a, an analogy that was used by one of the early investors um, when he spoke to me for the book. Uh, and why people put up with that, I don't know. Um, but um, what I will say that in the you know, the thing to know about uh, Theranos, she, she raised almost a billion dollars over 15 years. Most of that money was raised after uh, the fall of 2013, after she went live with the finger stick tests in Walgreens stores. And she essentially used uh, the fact that the, the technology was commercialized to convince investors to pour in more money. Um, and uh, sorry, I'm losing my train of thought about that. Um, I think those investors saw the fact that the, uh, the finger stick tests were available commercially um, and that, that patients were going to stores and getting blood test results as, as the validation that this, this technology was for real. It must be. Um, otherwise, you know, no one would have, Walgreens in particular, wouldn't, have, uh, wouldn't be offering it to, to its consumers. Um, and so... Uh, yeah, I think I, you know, I think that's what happened with the l last round of investors. But the early investors who put in money in 2005, 2006, never could get uh, any information out of the company, and uh, and that's actually highly unusual. Uh, VCs in Silicon Valley get updates from startups, you know, on a quarterly basis, and often much more frequently if they if they choose to. Um, uh, startups, most startups are not run this way. Hi. So uh, as someone from Silicon Valley, from Mountain View, actually, uh, the story was a little, you know, it hit close to home. Uh, my dad works at a startup. I started wondering if I should be asking questions about his CEO. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I was actually going to ask about Draper, but I think one of the other big things I was wondering was about David Boys and his team uh, and the way that, you know, they were just going after people so uh, relentlessly to defend complete falsehoods. So I don't know, do you think how much knowledge was there on, on that legal team of, of what was going on? And what, what is it that allows, you know, if they knew some of the extent of what, what was going on? You know, right. You write about how some of the lawyers made admissions later on where they would kind of retract what they said. Right. Or say small things. I was like, okay, so you're aware that not everything is there. Right. Um, you know, how is that kind of defense of a falsehood possible? I, you know, believe it or not, I don't think David Boyes knew the extent of the shenanigans at Theranos when, when uh, he led this uh, campaign, this sort of scorched earth campaign against me and, and my sources. Um, and I think he, it, the, the, the full extent of it uh, only dawned on him months later um, as regulators started coming in and, and inspecting. Um, 
but he had when when they came to the journal's offices in in uh, June of 2015 for the first sort of five-hour standoff, he must have known that a lot of the finger stick tests that, that Theranos was offering in Walgreens stores weren't being performed on, Ther on Theranos proprietary devices. Um, because, you know, I kept on, that was my central question is how many tests are you doing with a Theranos machine and how many tests are you doing with commercial analyzers, namely, you know, made by the German company Siemens, which I knew to be the case thanks to my laboratory director source, Alan Beam. And they kept dodging that question, invoking trade secrets. Um, and uh, so I think there was some knowledge. I don't think they had the full picture. Um, and that they, I don't think they got the full picture until much later. I don't think that excuses the, the behavior of the lawyers. Um, you know, I, I, I feel like that law firm, uh, and in particular, uh, one lawyer named Mike Brill, um, uh, behaved like thugs. Um, and um, I, I hope that, uh, you know, their, their reputation uh, in legal circles takes a hit um, because uh, it's, it's really not, uh, the, the way they behaved is not, um, I don't think, ethical and, and not appropriate. Yeah, thank you for all your great reporting. Uh, lots of people have already asked the questions I wanted to ask about... Uh, how could this have happened? And in particular, how could this have gotten started, bearing in mind what you said at the beginning? Uh, when a 19-year-old writes a computer program, that might be something great or it might be nothing, but a 19-year-old making a, a medical breakthrough is uh, pretty much unheard of. Um, so you've already answered that, but uh, I did want to make one, one point, though, about Steve Jobs' names come up, comes up so much, and you even mentioned this fake it till you make it attitude, but... Um, uh, Apple Computer didn't start with just an idea in the in the mind, or even just a design. They had a working computer built by uh, Steve Wozniak, and perhaps you know without that, Steve Jobs may have never amounted to anything at all. Right, um, but you know, St Steve Jobs did have a, a tendency to exaggerate um, or to you know announce things before they were completely ready. I mean, even the the, the last product, the last huge product the, that he unveiled in his lifetime was the iPhone in 2007. And, um, you know, that, that the, the, the prototype that he showed at the Macworld show, uh, I think it was in, I can't remember the exact month in 2007, but it wasn't, it was still, you know, it, it wasn't a finished product. Um, and, and so he, he's, he didn't wait until they had the, the fully functioning iPhone, which they did about six months later, to announce it. Um, and he, you know, he had a history of doing that. Larry Ellison, uh, who's another Silicon Valley icon, um, uh, was famous uh, in the early days of Oracle for exaggerating what the Oracle database software could do and, and uh, shipped early versions of that software that was crawling with bugs that, that Oracle essentially... Um, uh, relied on its early users, including government agencies, to help them debug. I mean, that, that's how uh, bulky and unreliable uh, the early Oracle database software was. And eventually, they, they got it to work. And Oracle is now one of the giants of, of Silicon Valley and is a well-run company. And, and Larry Ellison is worth, what, $60 billion and among the 10 richest people in the world. And, and so I think that Elizabeth Holmes's gambit was... Uh, 
I'm going to pull Larry Ellison. I'm going to, you know, be fast and loose in the early years and hope that eventually uh, the product catches up with my promises. But it never did. If anything, the gap between what she promised and claimed she'd achieved and, and the reality got only wider and wider. Does that answer your question? Well, my point was more that, I mean, uh, people could believe Steve Jobs when he was at such a young age because he had something to show them. But, but somehow people believed in Elizabeth Holmes at the very beginning. I can see later on, of course, yeah. she could conceal or, or build right. uh, a, a fabrication of lies. But somehow uh, it was like Robertson in particular must have. Yeah, I mean, I think. Swayed. Do you think he actually. I think Robertson thought that she was full of energy and uh, stubborn and determined and that probably someone like that um, was going to be successful at raising money and would hire people with the appropriate, uh, you know, training and education, and that those that the team that she built with the money she raised would eventually might eventually get her there, and that it might be a ticket to riches for him. Uh, I suspect Channing Robertson is one of the people who never agreed to speak to me. I suspect that that's what was going on in his head. Um, but uh, going back to your um, you know, to the parallel with Jobs and the fact that he did have a machine. She also had, you know, various prototypes. The first uh, iteration of the technology was an attempt at a microfluidic system, a, a cartridge and reader uh, system. And that was actually the most ambitious technology that Theranos ever worked on. And she would have investors come around and they would do these half bogus demos. Uh, because this uh, early microfluidic system didn't work at all. And in fact, the prologue of the book is a scene where uh, the, the chief financial officer in late 2006 learns eight months onto, uh, into his, his tenure at Theranos that, the, that the, these demos are bogus and confronts her and gets fired on the spot. Um, so, yeah, I mean, she... she People often ask if this was a, a Madoff-like fraud, and, and I respond that it's not in the sense that Madoff, at some point in the early 80s, uh, stopped investing money and uh, started using new money coming in from new investors to repay old ones, and it was a classic Ponzi scheme, and it was very black and white that from that point on, it was a fraud. Elizabeth Holmes, I think, wanted to be a successful entrepreneur and did work on different iterations for technology for 15 years. Um, but uh, she overpromised, and she refused to acknowledge the setbacks that, that she uh, encountered and papered over those setbacks and then kept insisting that she had achieved what she hadn't. And then the gap between her promises and claims and, and the reality got so enormous that it became this massive fraud. That's what happened. Okay, well, this this question has actually been asked by others too, but I just can't get around it somehow. And I, it kind of gets into what you're talking about there. So I'm just trying to picture those first meetings, how she got George, the likes of George Schultz, Henry Kissinger, James Mattis, some of the other big names. Granted, they're all older men. I notice they're all rather. You old. notice a pattern. <laughs> I do, and I and I, but even even accounting for you know uh, <laughs> some some issues with their men, I would have I would imagine people like them would have even like handlers or minders who make sure that their good name is not put to any use that might besmirch it. For example, I don't see how money is a big motivation for them. I I think I know it's a private company, but typically, you know, a, the due diligence role of a board is important. Maybe less so for a private company. But I'm just trying to understand what she was because she doesn't seem charming when you read the book. She seems actually quite 
uncharming. Um, and she fired a lot of people. So there's a lot of disgruntled people out there. I can't believe they were all fearful of David Boys. So how did she not spewing all this um, sort of bad, <laughs> bad blood? I mean, she she really created <laughs> she created bad vibes. OK, but somehow she charmed all of these people. And is there are there no right. consequences for them? Yeah, um, no, she's a ch chameleon. I think she you know, she she did run the company ruthlessly. And, and starting in 2009, when her boyfriend Sonny joined, he became the enforcer of the the cult the punitive culture at the company but she she also could turn on the charm and she did again and again with these older men starting with channing robertson when she was a teenager and then donald l lucas who was the uh you know pretty well-known uh, venture capitalist who groomed larry ellison helped him take or oracle corporation public in the mid 80s um and then um you know was chairman of, of the theranos board for like four or five years um, and developed Alzheimer's, unfortunately. And, and at that point, she pivoted to George Schultz. Um, and and Schultz became her mark. And she met him through a, a doctor at Stanford Medical School who's now deceased. Um, and uh, they had a, a long first conversation. And, and uh, according to Tyler, George has always been very passionate about science. And he was just taken with uh, what she claimed her technology could do. And uh, they started meeting often. He joined the board and then he introduced her to all his buddies at the Hoover Institution, the, the think tank on the Stanford campus. And that's how she got to meet most of those guys, the Henry Kissingers and the, uh, the, the Bill Perrys. Um, you know, they, I, I agree with you that I don't think it was just greed motivating these these older men, especially, you know, George Schultz was... 92, I think, when he met Elizabeth Holmes. He's 97 now. Uh, plus, he already has made uh, quite a bit of money. Um, I think that they bought into this, uh, this myth of the Silicon Valley entrepreneur, you know, this cult of the personality, um, that this notion that uh, these young tech founders walk on wa water and and that they can do incredible things and i think these these older men with all their years and decades of experience um somehow were seduced by by this you know this notion and she was a young woman and she you know really wooed them and and courted them not necessarily i'm not necessarily implying that there was anything sexual but she, you know, she uh, flattered them and, and spent a lot of time with them. And, um, you know, she was it was pleasant for them to be flattered by this young woman who, in addition to being attractive, was incredibly smart um, and 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 very passionate uh, about her vision. Um, and so they, you know, they were taken by all that, the, the, the whole package. Yeah. Uh, thanks so much for the book. It was really great to read. Thank you. Uh, I had two uh, questions, if it's all right. The first, uh, with regard to the AACC meeting right. in uh, Philadelphia, yes. I was wondering if you could provide some additional color on that that you might not have been able to include in the book. Uh, Steve Master, when he asked his question, it was just it was an amazing moment that really kind of took the lid off of it, uh, you know, once and for all, I would I'd probably uh, surmise. So I was wondering if you could maybe speak to that. And then secondly, there's, I think, just maybe one suggestion in the book that uh, Elizabeth's baritone voice is is perhaps an affect. It is an affect. Um, okay. <laughs> you know, the for those of you who haven't read the book, there's an anecdote where uh, an employee joins in uh, early 2011, 
And at the end of a long day, uh, she uh, concludes a meeting with him in, in her office, gets up, uh, grabs her jacket to leave, and on her way out expresses excitement that he's joined the company and that he's on board and that they, says that they're going to do great things and forgets to turn on the baritone and elapses into a, uh, a more natural sounding young woman's voice. And um, it's not just, I don't base it just on that anecdote. Um, uh, her uh, best friend at Stanford uh, was a source for the book and is actually named, it's her real name, Chelsea Burkett. She's uh, the main character in chapter, I believe it's chapter six of the book. And Chelsea says that Elizabeth's voice sounded nothing like that when she was at Stanford and, and when she dropped out of Stanford. Um, a family member was a source for the book and uh, that person says that um, uh, the voice was uh, affected as well. And then, you know, the best proof of it is that I have a recording of an interview she gave in May 2005 to NPR's Biotech Nation program. Uh, and at that point, she's 20 or 21 years old. She, her, she's 18 years into having, you know, founded Theranos, and she sounds nothing like uh, the Elizabeth Holmes of 2014, 2015. She, her, her voice is, is, the pitch of her voice is higher. She speaks uh, fast, almost so fast that she sort of stumbles over her own words. Um, she's like this bubbly, young, hyper-enthusiastic woman. Um, and uh, when you contrast that to the very poised, um, uh, contrived, you know, persona that she, that she fashioned over the ensuing decade, it's, it's quite a contrast. Um, your, what was your other question? The first question was on uh, Steve Miller. At right. Canal. So the, for those of you not familiar with this episode, um, uh, the American Association for Clinical Chemistry uh, held its annual meeting in August 2016, so about nine months after my first story came out. And uh, a lot of things had happened. Um, you know, two regulatory agencies, the FDA and the CMS, had gone and, and inspected Theranos. Um, uh, the SEC and, and the U.S. Attorney's Office had launched investigations. Um, uh, Theranos had had to void tens of thousands of blood test results. Um, uh, Elizabeth Holmes had been banned by, by CMS from running or uh, owning a laboratory for two years. But uh, Elizabeth Holmes still thought that she had a card to play, which was to show you know, the mini-lab prototype the Minilab being the third and last iteration of the Theranos device in front of, um, you know, this big audience of, of lab scientists at the AACC annual meeting. And she thought that if she could just wow them with a demonstration of her prototype that, um, you know, she could uh, sway public opinion and, um, and, and sort of like restore the universe to what she wanted it to be. Um, and uh, she gave, she got up uh, at the lectern and gave this sleek presentation. Were you, were you there? Or, no, but no. I, I watched the video. Yeah. And, um, you know, it wasn't, everyone was expecting a, a, a rigorous scientific study. I mean, not everyone, because a lot of people had, had doubts that, that she would really offer any proof. But um, to really uh, prove people wrong, she would have needed to come out with a rigorous scientific study showing that her machine could do what she had claimed, uh, and, you know, data, basically, pages and pages of data. And instead, she came uh, with this very sleek product demo, essentially, um, and spoke, you know, very eloquently for, for um, an hour. She had rehearsed it many times before that day. Uh, and then there was a question and answer session in front of about 
what was it, two or 3,000 lab scientists, and Steve Master, um, who uh, is someone I've gotten to know who helped me a lot with the technicalities of blood testing. He's uh, the laboratory director at Vale Cornell Medical Center in New York City. Um, was on this panel of a couple of lab scientists who asked her questions after after her product uh, demonstration and uh, he said something along the lines of, well, what you just showed us today doesn't come close to to what you claimed. And at that point, the, the audience burst out and, and sort of clapped and, and hooted. Um, but uh, overall, my impression was that that for the most part she wasn't uh, she wasn't pushed at the, the, all these lab scientists were really polite and really professional and um, she wasn't uh, you know pushed against the ropes like I thought she might be um, and she I feel like she got off easy uh, during that uh, you know the, during that what was essentially a, a big product demonstration and uh, and that was the closest I ever came to her I was at one point, about 20 yards from her, she was on the stage, and I was, when the, when the, the, the meeting disbanded, I got about 20 yards away from her and couldn't get any closer because of her, her security. <laughs> so, first off, thank you for coming here tonight and doing this. Um, a lot of serious, great questions about the matter at hand. I've been following the saga since 2013, and I just got to ask, as a award-winning journalist, a man of great composure, I'm sure. How did you feel? I, I just want some insight. What what came to mind? How did you feel when you found out about the whole Space Invaders game thing? Because I know you weren't able to include it in the book, but right, I just, right. it's so bizarre. Yeah. I'm curious. I, You know, I laughed. Um, uh, I was... Uh, yeah. So, uh, so just recently, maybe two months ago... Um, a, I talked to someone, someone reached out to me after seeing an announcement that my book was being moved up, the publication of my book was being moved up um, in light of the SEC um, charges. And uh, it was a former Theranos employee and um, she asked me to call her, I called her. And in talking to her, I found out that um, uh, a Therano, another Theranos employee in May of 2016 had created this uh, version of the Space Invaders game from, I don't know if any of you were born before 1980, but there was this game called Space <laughs> Invaders that you played on the Atari console. Um, and uh, it was like these invaders falling from the top of the screen and a uh, machine gun that moved left and right. And you, the, you shot at the invaders as they came down and, and tried to destroy them before they got to the bottom. And uh, he had created a, a Theranos version of Space Invaders and used my photo for my Twitter profile uh, <laughs> as the invaders and the, the machine gun at the bottom was the mini lab and uh, the, the bullets that it was spewing um, that were destroying my face uh, were the little nanotainer vials, Theranos' <laughs> little nanotainer vials. And, uh, and so I tw that day after learning of this, I tweeted that I had just, that the next employee had just told me about this. And uh, 24 hours later, uh, the, the Theranos employee who made the game reached out to me uh, by email and um, copped to having created this game, said he had, this was back in uh, May 2016, so it was about 
uh, six or seven months after my first story came out. At that point, Elizabeth was still spinning uh, the employees. A lot of employees uh, were not aware of the shenanigans in the lab, and they didn't. Some didn't know what to believe. Others were still, you know, believers in the company and and um, uh, of the mindset that I was a hater. And so he actually called this Space Invaders game um, "Haters Gonna Hate" version. I think it was version 2.1. And uh, and he had since when he reached out to me after I, I tweeted, uh, he had since left the company and become convinced that the company was in fact a fraud. And so. Um, you know, he wanted me to know that, and he also wanted me to know if to, he wanted to ask me whether I wanted a copy of the game, and I and I, and I said I did absolutely. And uh, a couple of days later, I got this this uh, hard drive in the mail with a copy of the game on it, and then um, you know gave it to our tech people at the journal, and they set it up on this Mac laptop, and I played it, and and we did a little fun uh, video showing me playing the the. Space Invaders, Theranos edition. I mean, to, to answer your question, so much had happened to, to vindicate me um, and and to you know to prove that that I had been right all along. By then, that I didn't take it too seriously, and I didn't take uh, you know a lot of umbrage. Um, he he said he wanted me to specify uh, if if the game came up in any of my talks or interviews that uh, he wasn't asked by uh, Elizabeth Holmes or Sonny Balwani to do it. He did it. You know, it was it was his own idea, and he did it because uh, he wanted to sort of buck up morale among his colleagues at the Newark, uh, California facility of Theranos. Anything as bizarre set before or after in your whole career? As the Theranos Space Invaders? Yeah. I mean, it is pretty bizarre, but um, <laughs> it I I learned of it so late in the game that it wasn't as... Um, stressful as uh, many of the things that the company tried to do to me and to my sources when I was in the midst, midst of trying to expose what they were doing. Thank you. This has been really great. Um, you talked about the fallout to Theranos and to the patients. Has there been real fallout to Walgreens? And how close was the military to actually incorporating the, this technology into what they were doing? In the end, the military never got that close because, as you'll read in the book, uh, a lower-ranking army officer named um, uh, David Shoemaker, a lieutenant colonel at Fort Detrick, who was basically the guy that you had to go through to get any um, medical experiment, experiment involving either a drug or a medical device, you had to go through him and get it approved. And um, he, uh, after she cultivated Mattis and, and tried to sort of railroad the thing through Mattis, um, it still ended up on uh, Shoemaker's desk, and he looked at it. He went and met with her once in Palo Alto, and a, another a second time a few weeks later in, in Washington D.C. And um, you know, he didn't know anything about whether the the technology worked or not, but uh, he didn't think her regulatory construct um, uh, was uh, abided by the rules, and and he also knew that an experimental device like this one had to either be approved by the FDA before it could be uh, used on soldiers in the field, or um, the Theranos had to come up with uh, a study protocol with an IRB, an institutional review board that, that approved the protocol, and then uh, that that whole protocol, IRB approved protocol, had to be reviewed by the FDA as well. And, and he kept telling Elizabeth that, and, and she tried to steamroll him. and. Uh, in the end, uh, she was never able to um, uh, 
you know, really get it by him. Mm -hmm. uh, what, the, Walgreen, Walgreens. Walgreens, yeah. I mean, Walgreens um, really didn't do its due diligence and didn't really have any idea about what was going on in the Theranos lab. It didn't know that most of the tests were done on Siemens machines that were hacked and, and that few of the tests were done on Theranos technology and that Theranos technology didn't work. And why? Because she used the same strategy with them, which was to keep them at arm's length and to, you know, um, uh, use the argument that it was trade secrets and that she couldn't disclose anything. Um, they uh, are being sued alongside uh, Theranos in Arizona. There's this putative uh, class action by uh, patients, um, and it alleges uh, consumer fraud and medical battery, and I believe Walgreens is a co-defendant. And um, they may also be a co-defendant in an ongoing um, securities fraud uh, putative class action in California. Um, and so, um, you know, the consequences, there, there have been some con consequences for Walgreens. Um, I think that if, if uh, the criminal case goes to trial, uh, Walgreens executives will probably be among the witnesses called to the stand to testify against Holmes and Bawani. My question is very related to what you just said. How come the test could have been commercialized by Walgreens if it was not FDA approved? Right. So uh, uh, Elizabeth Holmes exploited this loophole in the lab business known as laboratory-developed tests. Um, so usually labs, for most of the tests that they perform, use off-the-shelf commercial equipment made by the likes of Siemens and Becton Dickinson. And those machines, of course, have to be reviewed and approved by the FDA before they're commercialized. Um, but there is this one category of tests known as a laboratory-developed tests, which are referred to tests that labs uh, fashion with their own methods, not using off-the-shelf uh, technology. And um, Elizabeth Holmes argued that her finger stick tests were laboratory-developed tests because they used proprietary Theranos methods. And, um, and historically, the FDA has um, used its enforcement discretion, as it calls it, um, mainly, which means essentially that it hasn't uh, policed the, the LDT part of the lab business. Um, and uh, CMS doesn't really have the, the means. CMS is the other regulator, which is the, the overseer of labs, doesn't really have the means uh, or the resources to, to police that, that part of the business. And um, she and Sonny drove a, a huge 18-wheeler through this loophole and exploited it. Um, and, uh, I mean, we have a person here from the FDA. I don't know if she, she disagrees with what I just said. or Okay. <laughs> and your agency um, under the Obama administration was actually moving... Uh, toward regulating the, the laboratory-developed test a corner of the lab business. And uh, unfortunately, uh, since Trump was elected, uh, the new FDA commissioner has, has completely reversed course on that. And so, um, uh, if anything, you know, it looks uh, the, the, the day that um, that part of the lab business is, is uh, closely regulated looks uh, more distant than ever, than ever unfortunately. Thank you so much for such a wonderful event. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program 
Our email is podcasts at slate.com.